Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Coolangatta podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. In a world that is dominated by narratives of fear, anxiety, and worry, what does it mean that joy is not dependent on outward circumstances, but on the inner state of one's heart? You've joined us in our series, Philippians, where we are exploring what Paul meant when he wrote to have joy in everything and the importance of living in unity among believers for the sake of the gospel. We pray that this message is a blessing. Well, good morning, church. How's everyone this morning? Doing okay? Nice and cold for you? But if I've not met you, my name is Scott. I am one of the pastors here at New Life Cool and Gather. I'm so stoked that these two lovebirds down the front here got engaged this week. It's like, you know, a couple of my kids getting engaged. It's so nice. It's awesome. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're in week five of our sermon series, looking at the letter from Paul to the Philippians. And, and I love this series because this letter has so much life-transforming truth in its writings. It really helps Christians actually live in the victory Jesus bought for us in the face of suffering and pain with joy in the gospel, joy in the Lord, but also joy in the kingdom to come. Last week, we were encouraged by Paul to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And if we work out that gift of grace without complaining or grumbling, then we'll actually shine bright like stars in the night sky in the midst of this crooked generation. But now in chapter 3, Paul brings a warning about false teachers. He also warns us about things that can actually interrupt or affect our Christian walk. And I believe that God wants to free some people today from things that are holding you back, from living the life that God has planned for you. And today we're going to be exploring all of chapter 3, which is actually a lot of text. So I'll briefly explain some parts of it, but I'll zoom in on a few key points that I believe God wants us to grab hold of today. But just to start with, I'm just going to read from verse 1 to 9. Philippians 3, 1 to 9. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Jesus Christ and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So today we're going to have a three-point sermon on circumcision. (laughs) Sound good? No, it doesn't sound good at all. It's actually a painful subject, literally, right? I'm just joking. We're not going there. Um, There's so much actually in this text and further on in this text that I want to look into. So before we get there, I'd love to pray. Would you please join me in prayer? Father God, I thank you for your word, for your word is truth, God. 
Lord, I thank you that even in your word we, we find warnings. We find things that you, you ask us to see and to avoid. And then there's ways that you teach us to grow. Lord, I pray that you'd help me preach your message today with truth, with grace, with love. That in the end, Lord, they wouldn't look to me. That only look to you, the one who brings life and life in all its fullness. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I first got saved, like immediately after, I had a series of events that really shaped my understanding of who God was. So I got saved and the first thing happened was I injured my back and for about three months I could barely move. I'd be going to work in so much pain. And then literally the day that I thought, okay, I'm good enough to go back for a surf, three months later, I go for my first surf and I break my ankle. And so then for three months, my ankle is healing, and I'm thinking, what is going on? And then the first surf back, I strap up my ankle, I put this real ankle brace on there, I'm like, I'm going surfing, this is all good, we're all good again. And I go out, and I actually herniate a disc in my back, first time out, which led to another 12 months of just excruciating pain, looking at surgery, all these kind of medical interventions. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, okay, I'm a new Christian, God's just paying me back for all my sin of the past. That's fair enough. You know, like I've done a whole bunch of bad stuff, and so God's just, you know, paying me back for that. But my theology of the cross and who God was was wrong, because that's not the truth. I didn't fully understand the cross of Jesus Christ and what he actually accomplished there for me. The truth was Jesus paid the debt for all my sin. God was not judging me after he'd already judged Christ. Because Jesus died on the cross for my sin and the judgment for my sin was wiped away forever. And it was only by the grace of God and faithful Christians that I come to the true knowledge of what Jesus had actually done for me. What he'd actually done, he'd paid my entire debt. That God's for me, not against me. God doesn't do a double punishment. It was all laid on Christ. So my sin from past, present and future is done. And this is the foundation of the gospel. But in the early church in Philippi, there were people trying to pull believers in Jesus away from the grace of God. There were people trying to convince the Christians that the cross of Jesus and his sacrifice, it wasn't enough to save them. And Paul talks about this. He says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. I love how he starts, he's like, I write to safeguard you. Paul, Paul just has this love for the church. He has this love for the Philippians. He has this love for the truth of the gospel. He has a love for doctrine. And that expresses out, and he says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. This is interesting, right? So who are these dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh? Well, they were people teaching that the cross of Jesus didn't save you, that the sacrifice that he made just wasn't enough. You had to follow the Jewish law and be circumcised to be saved. You had to add that to it. So basically, you had to earn your salvation through following the law. Salvation was not a gift from God through repentance and faith. This teaching is very dangerous because it makes Jesus' sacrifice really nothing. And Paul is warning the Christians in Philippi to be cautious, on guard against a group of individuals who are promoting this false doctrine, this false teaching. And these 
People were most likely uh, Jewish legalists or Judaizers who insisted that Gentile Christians needed to be circumcised and follow the Mosaic law, the law that God gave to Moses in order to be saved. And by referring to them as dogs, Paul's using this derogatory term to highlight their false teaching and the danger they pose to the faith of the Philippian believers. It's strong language, right? Yeah, as Christians, should we use such strong language against people? Well, yes, because this is actually calling them to be, or causing them to be led astray from the truth that actually saves them. Do we know Jesus uses strong language too in the Gospels? He uses it all the time. In Matthew 23, there's actually this rant that Jesus goes on against the the Pharisees, against the religious rulers for 38 verses. And in verse 13, he starts, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. He's like, woe to you. You are hypocrites, you guys. Jesus comes at them with this this strong language. He actually calls them hypocrites seven times. I did a quick count through those 38 verses. He calls them fools twice. He calls them blind four times. He just keeps saying, woe, you hypocrites. Woe, you hypocrites. Woe, you fools, you blind. And then in verse 33, he says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell. Why is Jesus so scathing? Because these were religious teachers meant to be bringing people to God, but they were teaching a false doctrine that was actually drawing people away from salvation, away from God, by their own man-made rules. And this is exactly what's going on here in the Philippians. They're wolves among the sheep. They're pulling people away from the truth. And according to Paul, they're not Christians. They're turning people away from the grace of God and Jesus' sacrifice. And here's the thing. If you take the work of the cross out of Christianity, you take away the payment of sin, and therefore you're still in your sins. You're not saved. This is massive. These dogs were drawing people away from that sacrifice and the payment of sin. And Paul and Jesus actually use this strong language because this is serious. And then Paul says... We're the people of God, not because we're circumcised in the flesh, not because we're going the Jewish way, but because we are in Christ by the Holy Spirit. He says, for it is we who are are the circumcision, who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, that I myself have reasons for such confidence. You see, Christians boast in Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. We don't boast in our own righteousness or how good we're following the law. Because we're all hopeless at following the law, amen? Like none of us can fulfill it. There's actually nothing to boast in. And Paul himself uses himself as an example of someone who if they could boast, he could if he wanted to. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul's like, hey, you want to look at someone who's actually fulfilled all of this stuff? I've fulfilled it from birth. I'm a full-on Israelite. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, like the promise is for me. And it says he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the most religious people following the law you'll find. In the Old Testament, they followed the law to the T. So much so that 
that Paul actually persecuted the church when Jesus died and resurrected and the early church started. He was a Pharisee literally going out and putting people in prison because they were Christians. That's how much zeal he had. He's like, hey, if anyone can boast in following the Jewish law, it's me. The question is, what's a Pharisee? Well, it's these Jewish religious teachers and they studied the first five books of the Bible, which they called the Torah, and they actually knew it off by heart. You had to be really intelligent to be a Pharisee. And so the Torah had 613 laws that God gave to the Jewish people, and they lived these out religiously and held others to it. And they not only followed these 613 commandments of the Mosaic law, but they literally added new commandments, like thousands of them, to interpret the original 613 commands that we find in the Mosaic law, and they called that the Mishnah. So in the Mishnah, there's like these thousands of laws on top of the original law. So take the Sabbath, for instance. You, God said, you may not work on the Sabbath. It's a holy day. That, that was made for us. Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. Sabbath was meant that we would rest. We'd have time with family. We'd have time with God. But they went and added all these rules on top that made it a burden rather than a blessing. Stu Cameron, our lead minister, he went over to Israel and he's standing at, in a hotel and he goes to go into a lift and he notices all these people standing at the lift, but no one's pressed the button. He's like, well, that's weird. And he goes up and presses the button. The doors open and everyone piles in and he presses level three for his level and they all start asking him, can you press level eight? Can you press level seven? Because the Jewish people claim that that's work on the, on the, on the Sabbath. They can't even press a button to get up to their unit. So they stand there and wait for a foreigner to come. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, you've made this not a blessing, but an absolute burden. This is what the Pharisees were like. So Paul was a Pharisee who took the law to the next level. So if anyone could have confidence in his own righteousness according to law, it was actually Paul. So hear from someone who followed the law to the next level. He says, of all the people who have the right in the flesh, I've earned salvation. But he says, no, I didn't. It's actually all a waste of time. Verse 7, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that comes which through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. He says, all this law-keeping and self-righteousness is useless. Paul counts it as a loss, a waste of time and effort. Why is it a waste of time and effort? Because you can't earn your salvation. No one is righteous before a holy God. But what does righteous mean? Righteous means right standing. No one can stand before a holy God, no matter how much you try and follow the law and have right standing with him. And so if anyone teaches otherwise, that they're dangerous dogs. God wants us to know today, this is a foundational Christian truth, that we've all sinned. So the question is, what's the law for then? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silent and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law became the conscious Consciousness of sin. It's really self-explanatory here. The, the law was given to God's people to make them realize that they're all sinners. The law was given that, to make them realize and be conscious of their sin. 
You see, without the law, we could plead ignorance, right? And go, oh, we didn't know that was wrong. But the law was, rec- was given so we would recognize we are not holy like a holy God. The law was given so we could recognize we need to ask for salvation. The law was given for us to recognize we need a savior. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. The Bible is really clear on this issue. No one is sinless or perfect. You know, when I talk to non-believers all the time, they'll say to me, Oh, you know, if there is a God, I'll get into heaven. And I go, Oh, tell me, why is that? And they go, Oh, well, I do more good than bad. So, you know, if I do more good than bad, I'll get into heaven. That's just wrong thinking. If we look at this picture of scales on the, on the screen behind me, in a moment. In a moment? The picture? No? Anyway. So there's, there was a scales there, but there's scales, right? So people think, well, if I do more good than bad, then the scales will be tipped in my favor. And so when I come before a holy and righteous God, I'll have this, I'm in. Because look, I've done more good than bad, but that's not true. You see, our good works don't balance out our sin. This ideology is totally false. Because in the end, when we stand before a holy and righteous God, we're we're judged for our sin, not our good works. You see, we should be loving each other. We should be caring for one another. Why do we think that offsets our sin? And we know this to be true even on a, a human societal level. If someone goes to be judged for, say, murder, they go into the courtroom we all want them to be judged, amen, because they've committed murder. They come before the judge and they go, look at all this good stuff I've done. Doesn't that outbalance the one bad thing I've done in my life? And the judge says, no, you should be doing that. You're here to face the judgment for that sin, for that murder. It's exactly the same when we stand before God. We all believe in justice and judgment, except when it comes to our own sin. We want to deny judgment. We think we don't deserve it because we're prideful and we're deceived. Karl Barth says, our own righteousness is always incomplete and flawed. We must place our trust in Christ's righteousness alone for true salvation. It's only Christ alone that we can get that righteousness where we can stand before God. Jesus even points this out, that we're sinful and not perfect, even though we do good things. In Luke 11, he says, Which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake, not a steak? I would rather a steak than a fish. Which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus points out, just because you do good things doesn't mean you're actually good. He calls them evil. He's like, you're pretty much an evil bunch. Like, you still have evil in you. Jesus is saying, we've all sinned. And that our good deeds do not take away the problem of sin. Paul says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. The only way that we can be made righteous before God is to be in Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one who ever walked this earth and fully fulfilled the law, never sinned. He is perfect. He's the only one that can actually stand before the Father in righteousness, right standing. So we need to be found in him. So how do we be found in Christ? Well, Paul tells us it's through faith, through repentance, 
It's not through works. It's by putting our faith and trust in Jesus. Our righteousness or right standing comes from Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It's like when we stand before God on the day of judgment or when I die, I stand there and the Bible talks about our garments being filthy, stained. We're stained with the sin. And so when we stand before God, God sees that sin. But the Bible is very clear. When I stand before God and he goes, what's your excuse? I go, I'm in him. I have no righteousness on my own. My only righteousness is in him. And it says that Jesus clothes us in his righteousness. He puts a garment, a perfect, pure white garment over us. It's the only way that we can actually stand before God righteously as being in Christ. John Stott says, The righteousness of Christ is what counts as ours, so that we are declared right in him, acquitted and accepted by him, and given the right to enter his presence and enjoy a personal relationship with him. This is, this is the gospel right here, that, that we were separated from God and there was no way back. There was no option for us to work our way back to God. So Jesus had to come in the form of a human being to walk out that law that we could not walk out, to die the death that we deserved, that we would get the life that he brings through his resurrection. This is the beauty of the gospel. The law of God was to prove everyone to be a sinner in need of a savior. It was meant to make us reach out to Jesus, to be clothed in his righteousness by faith alone. Paul continues, he says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. He goes, I want to know Christ. Yeah, I want to, you know what, I want to know the power of his resurrection. You know, Paul just wants to become like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Has Paul become like Jesus in his life? Has he made it? No, not fully. He says, not that I've already attained all this or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which for Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. I love Paul's humility here. He's one of the people like that we read in the Bible that we believe followed Jesus very, very well, right? That was probably conformed to Christ's image more than a lot of people that have walked this earth. Yet he himself says, I haven't made it. Like, this is something I press forward into. I keep driving towards. What he's talking about, the difference between justification and sanctification. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified. We have right standing with God immediately. When we repent and put our faith in Christ, all of our sin is dealt with. We're justified in his sight. But what Paul's talking about here is then this process of sanctification, where we go on this journey, become more and more like Jesus in every part of our life, by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a never-ending process. And Paul even admits he's still on this journey of sanctification. So church, we need to accept and embrace that journey. Because if we don't embrace sanctification, with all the struggles that come along with it, we'll be knocked about in the sea like a ship with no rudder. We'll be tossed to and fro. But when we accept the sanctification, embrace the journey, and we embrace the change... We're like a ship with a rudder and we drive against the wind. We drive against the waves with direction and purpose. So what's the goal that Paul's talking about? Paul's goal is to become more like Jesus. It was a goal of this spiritual maturity or this pursuit of that. Many theologians interpret this verse as Paul's encouragement to press forward in the Christian life, striving for spiritual growth and maturity. The goal refers to this ultimate goal of becoming more like Jesus 
and experience the fullness of God's call in our discipleship. Is that your goal in life today? Or is your goal just to become more like your favorite celebrity? Or is your goal to become rich at all costs? Or is your goal just to become comfortable and just relax? Because Paul's goal is to become more like Jesus. How do we do this then? He says in verse 13, But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He says, I look forward. He's driving forward with perseverance and determination. He's actually making a bit, an effort, and I believe we need to hear this today. I think Christians are very apathetic sometimes in our responsibility to pursue Jesus, to pursue that spiritual change. We just want God to click his fingers and get things done straight away, right? Just fix this, God. Just fix that. But discipleship takes dedication. It takes effort. It takes perseverance. And there's a part of this text that, that's super important. I believe it's actually a kingdom key to effective Christian growth. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. Christians get caught up in the past and we can't move forward. You know, I see people being held back by sin, by past sin, by shame, by guilt, by fear, by unforgiveness. Or Christians looking back at the old life and going, oh, I want to go back there and continue to sin. I want to go back rather than pursuing Jesus. When we look at the past, I believe today people need to hear this. Some of you are stuck in your faith and growth because, because of the past. We actually need to let that go. We need to let go and forget what is behind and start moving forward. So if you get one thing from this sermon today, I pray you let this verse sink into your soul and your heart and ask God to help you. Forget what is behind you and ask God to help you move forward in his power and his grace in the freedom of the Holy Spirit because that will bring peace and purpose to you today. The past is so powerful in actually stopping us living in the freedom God has for you. You know Satan wants to keep you stuck there? He wants to make you ineffective for the kingdom of God. And one of his favorite methods is the past. Hopefully the picture you'll see next. Is this what he wants you to do? This is this Christian walk, this sanctification. He wants you to get caught up in the middle, in the past. He wants you in there. And many of you here today going, yeah, that's how I feel. I feel stuck. I feel stuck in my Christian walk. I feel stuck in my relationship with God. I feel like I'm in this, this never-ending maze where I just can't get out. I can't continue to move forward. All you need to do is look up mental health studies, the effect of past sin or past hurts or shame or guilt or unforgiveness. And these studies show the effects on your life and your relationships. They show that people get stuck in the maze and they actually can't move forward in anything in life once they're in there because they just keep looking back. You know, this was, happened to me even when I first became a pastor many years ago. I used to go through these moments where I'd get stuck in the past and I'd be like, oh gosh, God, I can't believe I used to do this, I used to do that. Why have you got me to be a pastor? I felt all this shame and this guilt. And it was actually stopping me to move forward in the freedom of what God called me to. I was caught in this maze of shame and guilt. And God's like, no, you're a new creation. I've actually dealt with all that. You are a new person in me. You are filled with my spirit. You are now my son. And it wasn't until I took hold of that and believed that, that I actually got out of the maze and walked into the freedom that God has for me. And one of the biggest ones is unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is guaranteed to make you stuck in the maze. It's guaranteed to keep you going around in circles and circles. 
Now, I'm not saying that what has been happened to you is, is good or that we should forget that. That's not what I'm saying. Some people have been through some horrible stuff. But when we don't forgive, we get stuck in here, they don't. Our walk gets stuck in this zone, in this maze. And one of the worst ones is looking back and thinking life would be better if we could just go back to sinning like you were before you were saved, looking back and desiring sin with no conviction. You see, Satan wants to tempt you back to the sin of the past. Jesus talks about this in Luke 9. Jesus replied and said, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, if if I've saved you and you start moving forward in discipleship, if you're looking back going, oh, things may have been better back there, I want to go back there, he's like, you're not fit for the kingdom. You're not fit for service. You're going to get stuck in that maze. I can't use you because you're thinking that's better than actually following me. So Paul's language of straining and pressing forward, it takes effort, it takes responsibility. That phrase, press on, suggests a, a sense of determination, of perseverance in the face of challenges and obstacles. It implies a single-minded devotion to Christ and a willingness to continue to pursue him regardless of the difficulties or the setbacks or the past. But it's towards what? It's towards maturity in Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Mature Christians should have this mindset. But you might be a new Christian here today, and that's okay. It actually takes time to learn. It takes time for God to heal past hurts, to heal past sins. But embrace the journey. Embrace the journey of healing and restoration, and he will lead you out of that maze. That is what God does. He brings healing and restoration from the past, from the inside out. So just let him. And it's the job of the church, and it's the job of mature Christians to help you on that journey of faith of hope and healing. But Paul's very clear here that if you're a mature Christian, then we have a job to teach, to teach those we are discipling these things. And then he tells us to actually live up to where we currently are in our process of sanctification. Mature Christians live up to what we've already attained, but also keep moving forward. Are we living up to what we've already attained? I'm very thankful for that. He says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, And just as you have such a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. He goes, you want to look at an example of someone who's not made it, but that's pursuing Jesus? Look at me for an example. Paul's like, I rely on the grace of God through faith, not my own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus. And he says, look around. Look at other examples of those that are moving forward in faith in the likeness of Christ. This is discipleship. Jesus said, go and make disciples. He didn't say, go and make believers that just sit back and relax. Jesus said, go and make disciples. That means followers of me, people who go on this journey. That's why our mission statement as a church is more people, more like Jesus. That's been our heart for many, many, many years that we want to see people grow in faith. He continues in verse 18, For as often as I've told you before, I now tell you again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Paul warns of these these dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators. But but we see the beauty of his heart here. He, He has tears in the lost. 
He has tears for the fact that, that these people aren't actually saved. They're enemies of the cross because they're looking at their own self-righteousness. Paul has such a soft heart. He has a heart like God's heart that breaks for those who are lost and trust in their own righteousness. Because Paul knows that they won't enter the kingdom because they don't trust in the only one, in Jesus and Jesus alone. Because salvation is only through him. Eduardo, do you want to come up, mate? And he finishes off because, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies that we will be like his glorious body. Notice how each week when we've preached that, that Paul teaches something really important. He always starts with rejoice. And then he finishes with the coming kingdom and the promises that we look into that we look forward to. He says, but you know what? You are different. You are changed. Our citizenship is in heaven. He's like, we look forward to a future when God will transform our earthly bodies into our glorified bodies, free from sin and pain and suffering and decay and death. And just as Jesus was resurrected and alive forevermore, we too have the promise that we will be resurrected on the day of judgment. We will receive our glorified bodies and live like that forever. Our resurrected bodies will be fully transformed and conformed to the image of Christ. Our new bodies will be free from sin and all the limitations of our current bodies, which is corrupt. When Grudem says the resurrection body will be imperishable, powerful, and glorious, it will no longer be subject to sickness, aging, or death. It will be perfectly suited for the eternal fellowship and worship of God. Who's looking forward to a perfected body? Right? With no bald spots, no spare tires, no wrinkles. Or is that just me? That's what I'm looking forward to. All the young adults are like, don't know what you're talking about. You will soon. It comes to us all. But Paul encourages us to look forward to this day with joy. Look forward to this heavenly reality that is to come, but also rejoice in the heavenly reality that we live in now. We live in the unbreakable promises of God in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Rejoice, for we are saved, redeemed, forgiven. We are children of God, transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus day by day. And one day we will be fully like him. We will receive our glorified bodies, our eternal bodies, where we get to enjoy God and each other in perfect love and unity forever. Hallelujah. Praise God. So what do we learn from chapter 3 of Philippians? What does it teach us? Well, it teaches us to watch out for dogs for evildoers, people who teach false doctrine. It teaches us to realize that we are not righteous. We need forgiveness. It teaches us we need to get that forgiveness through Jesus Christ. He is the only righteous one through repentance and faith. Forget what is behind. Forget the past. Get out of the maze. Strive forward towards the goal to become more like Jesus. And look for others who are a good example. Actually surround yourself with those who are pursuing Jesus too and look forward to one day when you will receive the reward, your resurrected and glorified bodies. And all this is to the glory of the Father through Jesus Christ the Son and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we just thank you so much for your word, Lord. I thank you that... There is so much power in your word. 
there are truths, Lord, that I just pray will just be written out of hearts today. I pray we here will receive that, God, that we would stop looking back, that we would not get stuck in the past, that we would come to you in repentance and faith and know that you have dealt with that, you have forgiven us of that. Help us move forward, Lord. Holy Spirit, I just pray in this moment, would you just come and maybe just show us where, where we're getting stuck, where we're stuck in the maze. Is it unforgiveness? Is it past shame? Is it sin? What is it, Lord, for us here today? And I just pray, in the name of Jesus, be released of that right now. Jesus died for you. He rose again. He came to break chains. So I pray that those chains right now be broken in the name of Jesus Christ over past sin, over past help, uh, hurts, over unforgiveness, over sin. We just pray, Lord, right now, in Jesus' name, be set free. That you can walk in the newness of life empowered by the Holy Spirit. And you might be sitting here in this moment of prayer and you've actually not received that forgiveness of Jesus. Only today you recognize, yeah, you know what? I don't have my own righteousness. I do have an issue with sin. I'm here today to tell you that Jesus paid for that out of love for you. He wants relationship with you. He wants to forgive you. And you can receive that today. It's simply by just faith, putting your faith and trust in Him. So I'm just going to ask well, everyone has their heads bowed. If you could just lift your hand and raise your hand, I would love to pray for you. If you want to receive that forgiveness today, just raise your hand now. Thank you, Lord. Lord, you saw that hand. I just pray right now that she would just sense and know your presence. Lord, as she puts her faith and trust in you, that you would fill her with your Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you that you will be with her, that you will guide her, that you will strengthen her that she would come to know you deeper and deeper every day as her Lord and as her Savior. Lord, we give you all the glory for what you've done here today and what you are doing in and through each and every one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Would you all like to stand with us as we worship this amazing God? Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page.